This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Rick McIntyre, the wolf researcher in Yellowstone National Park. No one has spent more time observing and documenting wild wolves than retired National Park Ranger Rick McIntyre, who has watched wolves in America's national parks for more than 40 years, 25 of those years in Yellowstone, where he's accumulated over 100,000 sightings. McIntyre is the author of the ongoing Alpha Wolves of Yellowstone series, including The Rise of Wolf 8, the Reign of Wolf 21, and the recently published The Redemption of Wolf 302. He is currently at work on a fourth book about Wolf 06 and other Yellowstone Alpha females. This due out in the fall of 2022. He lives in Silvergate, Montana, just outside of the Northeast Park entrance. So welcome, Rick. It's great to be talking with you. I've known of you for many years, and uh, admired what you're doing. So let's start off talking about how you got started studying wolves and when you decided to do so. Yeah, thank you, Jay, and thank you for inviting me on your show. It it was sort of a very circuitous journey, I guess I'll say. I grew up in a rural part of Massachusetts. My major in college was forestry, and I thought I'd be a forester for the U.S. Forester. Mm -hmm. did work on national forests in the uh, Northeast and then in, in the West as well. But I was actually trained to do clear cuts, to uh, plan out clear cuts, and I, I really wasn't too excited about spending my my life doing that. Cutting trees down. Uh, yeah, I um, by accident, they forced me to do the programs for uh, forest visitors, uh-huh. I didn't want to do it because, like most people, I was afraid of public speaking, but I uh-huh. had to do it. And it turned out that I, I liked it and had some ability to, to do it. Uh-huh. By that time, I was realizing I, I would be a better fit for the National Park Service than the U.S. Forest Service. So to condense a, a, a lot of uh, details, I uh, took a firefighting job in Sequoia National Park and then was able to uh, work in Alaska at Denali National Park, started there in 76, and began to see wild wolves there. Spent 15 summers there, spring, summers, and falls. And at that time, that was maybe the best place in North America to see wolves on a regular basis. So I I did get a lot of sightings. I I was asked to write a book after I finished um, in Denali. Worked a little bit in Glacier National Park, and that included um, once being stationed in Polebridge, which is where the main wolf population is right. raised, so I was able to see those. And then that led up, fortunately, uh, for me, very fortunately, to 1994. That was the year before the Yellowstone Wolf Reintroduction. So I was hired to come down here with the title Wolf Interpreter, 
and that meant that I would be working with the public Yellowstone visitors to explain the wolf reintroduction program. So all, all my work here was exactly on that issue. And then I continued to work here after the wolves were released. I was in the naturalist division here, so I would be out in the park every day in my ranger uniform with a spotting scope. You may know that we didn't really expect that the wolves after release would be very visible because they had all been caught in parts of Canada where there was very intensive wolf hunting and trapping. So after being brought down here, those wolves certainly would have reason to not want to be anywhere near where people were. But somehow they adjusted, and to some extent they realized that they were in a somewhat safe situation here. Mm -hmm. So I would go out in the morning real early, find the wolves. I'd have my spawning scope set up. I'd be in a ranger uniform. People would be driving by. They'd see me, ask what I was looking at. I would help them see wolves, talk to them about the program, the wolves that they were watching. More people would come. More people would come. And uh, so it just kind of built up into this thing where I was out there every day helping people, but also getting to, to watch and study and record wolf behavior. So, Rick, tell us, did you have some training on monitoring wildlife, or did you develop the technique by all by yourself? Yeah, I, I would say I somewhat had to figure it out by myself. I was a forestry major in college, took a couple of wildlife classes, but... You know, nothing that really related to uh, intensive field observation. Mm -hmm. But when I started working in Denali National Park in Alaska, I was seeing grizzlies all the time, wolves, caribou, moose, stosh, etc. I was doing a lot of wildlife photography back then, but when I would see interesting behavior, I would go home and write up some notes about it. Nothing as ex extensive as I am doing now, mm -hmm. but at least it kind of got me in the habit of that. And then when I started watching, when I started in Yellowstone and the wolves were released in 95, and we were beginning to see them all the time, then yes, I just naturally continued that, but in a lot more detail. So I, in the field, I speak into a tape recorder, pretty much narrate what the wolves are doing, and then I go home and transcribe that on my uh -huh. computer. So everything is in a computer file, and everything, um, I, I, I transfer what, what's on the tape to complete sentences, complete paragraphs, so that anybody can read it and understand it clearly. I have over 12,000 single-space pages of that material now. And for writing my books, it's such a perfect situation for me because it allows me to, to review all that stuff in detail because so much of it I, I would have forgotten something. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm doing right now for my fifth book is reviewing that. So how do you do your observations? Do you do them mostly from the road or do you go back and get into the backcountry? Uh, how do you do that? Well, I start by driving out into the park. I live in Silvergate, which is just slightly outside the northeast entrance of right. the park, only about a mile. And so it's about, uh, oh, plus or minus 20 miles to Lamar Valley, one of the main spots where we see wolves. So I would stop there, look around. When I was working for the Park Service, I had telemetry equipment where I could get the signals from the 
essentially with the, the program to exterminate them. So I did a compendium, a collection of historic documents called War Against the Wolf that brought all those things together. Just as an example, in what is now New York City, specifically Manhattan Island, there were enough wolves on that island in the 1600s that the Dutch government offered a cash bounty to anyone that killed one and, and mm. turned it in. That gives you a, a pretty good idea how widespread wolves were in North America in the old days, but also a good idea that when the Europeans began to settle here, it killed off wolves in the old country. So um, they were aghast at the fact that America was so backward that it still had wolves. So that was one of their top priorities to kill them off, and they they did it all over the, the eastern colonies. So there are no bull wolves in the east now? Well, um, there's some talk uh, about uh, perhaps from eastern Canada, a few coming down into very northern Maine. Mm -hmm. um, that really hasn't been confirmed. Uh, until recently, in the lower 48 states, the, the only uh, definite wolf population had been in the lake states. And then we did the reintroduction here in Idaho in 1995. Mm -hmm. And then slowly the, the wolves that were released in, in our states here, Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, have begun to recolonize uh, Oregon, Washington State, and uh, now even parts of California. So uh, wolves are pretty good at dispersing from their families, from their home territories, trying to find a mate. So one actually made it down to Southern California, but um, it happened, uh, unfortunately, it was hit and killed by a car when it was trying to run across the road. So. Well, that poor guy didn't quite make it. That was just recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So have you ever felt threatened by wolves? No, uh, not at all. Um, uh, I My theory is that they see humans as superior predators. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that, I, I don't think they can understand <laughs> what we do. Uh, I, I don't know what their understanding is when they see a car go by with people hopping and being out and looking at them, uh, the relationship that those humans have to the car. I, I don't know how they try to figure that out. Uh, but I, I, I think that they, they look at us, they understand us as something that, that they don't want to mess with, that there's something about us that is dangerous to them. And I think that's a good attitude for them to have. So what's, uh, what's unique about wolves, uh, say, versus coyotes? Well, they are related. They're both in the canine family, as are the domestic dog. Mm -hmm. And one thing I, I, I like to tell people when they come to Yellowstone as visitors, if they've never seen a wolf in their life, if they've never seen a documentary about wolves, they actually probably know quite a bit about wolf behavior due to their experience with dogs over the years. Mm -hmm. So the way that a dog, a pet dog, fits into a human family would be very much the same way that a, a wolf pup or a yearling fit into a wolf pack, in the sense that it's subordinate to the older wolves, it's cared for, protected by the older wolves, but yet sometimes has to be disciplined by the old wolves as well. And then, uh, essentially, to carry it a little bit further, the younger wolves serve an apprenticeship um, under the older wolves. And then it may be that um, as they get older, 
some of them will replace the alpha male and the alpha female. Um, in other cases, they'll disperse from the family, take the big chance of leaving the safety of their territory and trying to find a mate, which is a dangerous thing to do. Here in Yellowstone, we've been able to show that the most common cause of death for a wolf is to die at the hand of another wolf. They're very aggressive in defending their territory. So that's one of many ways that they're like people. And I, I guess you know, that's really the big point to make here in, in terms of understanding wolf behavior, learning about it, is that we're, we're both social beings. We, we live in family groups. So um, a, a wolf pack starts with two wolves, one male and one female that are off. They have pups their first spring, and um, it goes from there. They don't breed with close relatives like people don't, so that's the motivation for some of them to disperse, to leave, and try to find an unrelated female. Have you ever known of a coyote to be accepted into a wolf pack? No. <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, the, let's just say wolves and coyotes don't like each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, to some degree, they're competitive. But um, the, the primary difference is that coyotes here might be 25 to 30 pounds, mm -hmm. but the wolves are maybe 80, 110, mm -hmm. uh, kind of in, in terms of an average range. So they're much bigger. Coyotes uh, primarily hunt small prey, rodents, things like that, mm -hmm. whereas wolves hunt larger prey. That's why wolves are such a bigger animal. Mm -hmm. Now, in the early years of the reintroduction, it was real interesting to be here because the wolves had been killed off 69 years earlier. So many, many generations of coyotes had come and gone without ever having to deal with wolves. So um, because wolves limit the number of coyote packs and the number of individual coyotes, the coyotes skyrocketed in population. When the wolves came back, after doing some research, we were able to figure out that with the average wolf pack territory being perhaps about 300 square miles, it may be that within that one wolf pack territory, there were in the early days of the reintroduction, there may have been as many as 10 coyote packs. Mm. Well, because they're competitive um, and they don't like each other, then uh, in the early years, I had a lot of observations of wolves chasing down coyotes and mm -hmm. killing them. They don't like each other. Uh, but after a few years, that tapered off because I, I guess what happened was that the coyote density dropped to a point from that real high one that I mentioned mm -hmm. to a level where the wolves weren't, um, I guess, as, as bothered or harassed by the coyotes. And so now there's a, a little bit more, uh, well, let's say allowance that the, the wolves make for the coyotes. They ignore them a bit more than they used to in the old days. There's certainly exceptions to that. Um, a big issue for wolves is they take on the risk of killing a large prey animal like an elk, and then if they fed and they see a group of coyotes coming in and stealing it from them, well, it's pretty understandable what they'd want to do about that. Sure. And one thing they can do about it is kill the culprit. So that's one of the big issues between wolves and coyotes, that type of stealing. How long do wolves live? Here, um, the average is about five years. However, if
if we were talking about a zoo or some type of a captive facility that had wolves that are fed a good diet for their whole life, they have good veterinary care, that vaccinate mm-hmm. things like that, in theory, they could live as long as a dog because they're essentially the same species. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I believe in zoos, wolves have lived to something like maybe 17 years, plus or minus. Mm-hmm. But as I said, here in the wild, uh, about five years um, is the average. I think the oldest we've had um, was just a little bit over 12 years. That's very unusual. And that was an old female that had a lot of health issues, and she died not too long after that. So it would, I, I guess you might compare it to humans back um, maybe in the Ice Age or something like that, where the average age might have only been 35 or 40, but occasionally somebody might get to 70 or 75, but that would be somewhat unusual. Right. So wolves form in packs uh, consisting mostly of their mates and their offspring. Uh, what's the range of pack size? How large do they get? Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, as I, we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, generally it starts just two. Um, the average tends to be about 10. So over the 20, almost 28 years of the reintroduction now, for Yellowstone being 2 million acres, uh, we tend to have an average of about 100 wolves and about 10 packs. So uh, you see the math there works out to about an average of 10. Um, sometimes we have a, 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 a pretty major variation on that. Um, until recently, the Junction Butte pack, which is the main one that I studied, um, was the second largest pack that we ever had. It was getting up into the uh, above 20, but some of them were shot in the hunt. Some of them dispersed and joined a uh, well, other wolves to start a new pack. Others we lost track of, and so when we saw them yesterday, the number was uh, 16. And then a, a new development just in the last couple of days one of the young females in the Druid pack, essentially the equivalent of a human teenager, a female, mm-hmm. up with a young male from another pack, the Wapiti Lake pack, and they both have radio callers, and at least as of today, the signals are indicating that they're still together, and I, I think this is the third day. We're getting close to the mating season for wolves, which is in February, so um, that sequence of events, the two packs were somewhat near each other. They would have been howling at each other. The young female was probably thinking, gee, that guy over there sounds interesting. And uh, they met just kind of like a couple of human teenagers. So what's the pri- the primary source of food, is, I assume, in Yellowstone is elk. Uh, moose only make up 1% of the diet. Why is that? Moose have a, a, a much smaller population in Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. Um, what's been real interesting for me to be here over the decades is that when we found from our records that when the wolves were killed off by the early rangers in 1926, that caused the elk population to skyrocket. Um, in the, the northern section of Yellowstone, where I'm based, in the early 60s, the Park Service asked some uh, botanists to do a survey of the vegetation, 
and to uh, make an estimate of how many could be supported without any real damage to the plants. And they told the Park Service probably about 6,000 elk, but at that time there were 30,000. So they were doing a lot of damage to the native grasses and and uh, aspen shoots, things like that. It'd be the equivalent of a, a farmer that has a pasture but has put too many cattle or too many sheep on it. They'd be eating the, the vegetation down to the root level and, and killing it, harming themselves. So uh, this is also, this is hard to believe, but for several decades, the way the park rangers were dealing with the problem of excess elk, the overpopulation and the damage, was they would shoot them in the winter or trap them and then send them to any state, Canadian province that, that wanted them. So when they brought the wolves back, there was that overpopulation, and now uh, that problem is really pretty much resolved in that it, it's back down to about that 6,000 level, which is, is the, the green capacity of good balance. Now, a, a footnote to what we were just talking about is the bison numbers have been increasing in Yellowstone, and we are seeing an increase in bison hunting and predation by the wolves. Uh, but bison are a whole different matter for wolves to deal with. So um, a big bull elk is maybe six, seven hundred pounds. So that's a pretty big, strong opponent if you're a 100-pound wolf, but a bison bull is 2,000 pounds, a cow maybe 700 pounds or so. So uh, very, very dangerous to deal with, but there's a lot of bison here. Yeah. And like in any population of wild animals, there's going to be a certain number in the herd that are very old, um, they're in poor health, or have an infection, a broken leg, or something like that. So the wolves are real experts at being able to discern and pick out that. I was just watching a, a video of a successful elk hunt. It's on the internet. Mm. And uh, it was just a classic situation. It was the junction beat pack. You see um, about 15 wolves or so chasing maybe three, four hundred elk, and all the elk but one are just leaving the wolves in the dust because an average elk is just faster than the average wolf. But then you could see that there was one elk that was lagging behind and further and further behind. And so the lead wolf, the fastest one, finally was able to grab a hind leg. But when you watch the video, boy, you're really impressed by the size difference of how small that one wolf was to the, the cow elk, but then the other wolves ran in and helped that one pull it down. So that's what we see all the time, that um, hel excuse me, healthy elk, uh, uh, they have the strength and the speed to be able to outrun mm -hmm. wolves. So if you're a wolf, your job is to find um, the, the very few elk that have something wrong with them. Now, that gets into what, for me, is a, a really fascinating side issue that relates to that. So you, you think of how good the sense of smell dogs have mm -hmm. and how there's all these stories that you hear about that their human owner uh, notice that their dog is whining and they maybe lick the, the lower leg of their human owner. They, they, they seem to be very worried or concerned about something that their human friend has, and then the person checks it out and they have cancer or something mm -hmm. like that. 
So dogs have a good enough sense of smell that they can actually detect something like cancer in a person and uh, um, uh, alert the person. They can also detect the onset of epileptic fits, things like that. And that's all from their wolf ancestors. And so you've already probably put two and two together in that story, those examples, that if you're a wolf that has that sort of sense of smell, it's maybe a hundred thousand times better than a person, maybe that slow elk, in addition to seeing it run at a much lower rate than the others, was picking up the scent of an infection or something like that. One of the biologists had done a necropsy of the cow elk that the wolves had killed, and he showed me the lower jaw, and the jaw was, was full of rotten teeth and teeth that had already fallen out. And so when that elk was alive, probably like a, a person with rotten teeth, um, you would have been able to smell the infection. And th- that would be another example of a tip-off of that that's the one for us to get. So, Rick, we are out of time. Uh, but uh, let's continue this next week. And uh, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll pick it up then. It was great. And- I can do it. was a lot of fun. Our guest today is from Rick McIntyre, wolf researcher in Yellowstone National Park and author of Redemption of Wolf 302. It's available from Amazon on, and published by Greystone Press. This has been Wilderness and Wildlife, a presentation of the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. To hear more of these half-hour interviews, go online to jswilderness.com and see additional features of our website. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Jay Shell.